For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design. Featuring a reimagined exterior with compelling proportions and precise detailing, and an interior built with robust materials and integrity, the Defender 110 lets you go further and do more. Its durability has been tested to the extreme while the cargo capacity means more room for your gear. Ready for a wide range of adventures, the Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, and the Defender 130, which seats up to eight. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. When you're an American Express Platinum Card member, don't be surprised if you say things like, Chef, what course are we on? I've, I've lost count. Or, shoot that, shoot that! And even... Checkout's not until 4, so... Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants, elevated experiences at live events, and 4 p.m. late checkout at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. From 30 Rockefeller Plaza in New York City, please enjoy this podcast edition of Late Night with Seth Meyers, airing weeknights at 1235, 1135 Central on NBC, right after The Tonight Show. This weekend could not have provided a more stark contrast to begin the Trump era. On the one hand, we saw what may have been the largest organized protest in U.S. history. And on the other hand, we had the new Trump administration openly lying on its first full day in office. For more on this, it's time for a closer look. The start of the Trump era was greeted on Saturday by a massive nationwide show of resistance. Between three and four million people marched in what analysts believe may well be the largest protest in U.S. history. The first day of Donald Trump's presidency brought more than 600 massive anti-Trump protests around America and the world. Including in Boston, Chicago, Denver, Los Angeles, and overseas in London, Berlin, even down in Sydney, Australia. Hundreds of women's marches sweep the nation, including here in Wichita. In Anchorage, thousands turned up yesterday. More than 5,000 people at the Sister March in downtown Birmingham. Demonstrators also standing in solidarity as far as Antarctica. Imagine being so disliked that people are willing to go outside and protest you in Antarctica. <laughs> That's like if you climbed Mount Everest and when you got to the top, there was a guy standing there booing you. <laughs> For millions of people upset about the election results, the marches were a welcome show of solidarity and creativity. Of course, one of the best parts of any protest are the signs, like this woman whose sign said just, ugh. Or this little kid who was clearly put in charge of making his own sign and decided to go with, I love trains. <laughs> Although it did make things a little awkward when moments later, Joe Biden waded through the crowd screaming, some rugrat stole my sign. <laughs> there were zero arrests and few, if any, tense encounters. In fact, the most tense any of the marches ever got was this amazing exchange captured by New York Magazine in which a Trump supporter tried to lecture a group of marchers, telling them, quote, if you people had jobs, you wouldn't be out here doing this mess. To which another woman walked by and said, quote, bitch, it's Saturday. <laughs> by the way, if you want to be a millionaire, put that on a T-shirt next to a cartoon glass of wine. 
Now, in some ways, this show of organized resistance shouldn't be all that surprising. Trump lost the popular vote by almost three million and enters office with the lowest approval ratings in modern history. His approval ratings, true story, are almost as low as his tie. <laughs> so you'd think he might use his inaugural address to unite the country and provide an uplifting vision of the future. Instead, he opted for nightmarish, dystopian hellscape. Rusted out factories scattered like tombstones across the landscape of our nation. The crime and the gangs and the drugs. America's infrastructure has fallen into disrepair and decay. This American carnage stops right here and stops right now. Jeez, more like an oration. So just to clarify, Ronald Reagan said it's morning in America. Trump is saying it's morning in America, but like early morning when you wake up hungover in a cold sweat and you realize you're in Thailand and there's a dead body in the bed next to you and the only sound you hear is cops banging on your door and all you can think is, what the f is happening? It's that kind of morning. So maybe... Trump's record low approval ratings and the fact that he lost the popular vote had something to do with the fact that his inauguration was more sparsely attended than previous ceremonies. Have a look at this. This is Barack Obama's inauguration, a picture taken from the vantage of the Washington Monument back in 2009. And on the right-hand side, at about the same point in the inauguration, this is the crowd that we had today. Obviously considerably thinner, uh, the crowd for Donald Trump. Look at those photos. They look like shots from a Billy Joel concert before and after he plays Piano Man. <laughs> he played it. Let's, let's beat traffic. He played it. <laughs> now, we know Trump doesn't care that much about the sizes of things, especially crowds, so it was a little surprising to hear him complain about the media coverage of the attendance at his inauguration the very next day during what was supposed to be a pep talk at the CIA. We had a massive field of people. You saw that. Packed. I get up this morning, I turn on one of the networks, and they show an empty field. I said, wait a minute. I made a speech. I looked out. The field was, it looked like a million, a million and a half people. They showed a field where there were practically nobody standing there. I love how he gets so breathless when he's upset. <laughs> I turned on the TV this morning and said, they're showing a picture of MTV. <laughs> There's millions and millions of people. But he's right. Why did they show a field where there was nobody standing when they could have shown the stands along the inaugural parade route? But there was also nobody standing. Look. Look at how empty those bleachers are. There were more people in the bleachers during summer lovin'. <laughs> of all the people who did show up, there was Al Roker, who for some reason tried to get Vice President Mike Pence's attention with candy and almost succeeded. Mr. Vice President, Vice President Pence. President. Mr. Vice President. Tell him about the candy. I got candy. <laughs> Mr. Vice President, we have a snack. He got him. He's looking. Nothing. Come on. He's got him. No, he's got him. Nothing. I guess I had the wrong candy. Come on, Al. You know Pence would never approve of the unnatural relationship between Mike and Ike. 
Al Roker. Hey, guys, Trump seems pretty mad at NBC. I don't think they're gonna talk to me. No, you'll be fine. Take some candy. But here's the thing, Mr. President. It was a perfectly respectable crowd, full of people who love you and are excited you won. It just wasn't a record-breaking crowd. And it's not your fault you had to follow him. People just really liked him. He won the Electoral College and the popular vote. But hey, you're still the most popular president since Obama. And look, no one, no one cares about crowd sizes. The only reason this is a story is that Trump insists on lying about it and sending White House officials out to lie about it. Like he did on Saturday when he sent his press secretary, Sean Spicer, to brazenly lie to the entire press corps by disputing what everyone saw with their own eyes. Photographs of the inaugural proceedings were intentionally framed in a way in one particular tweet to minimize the enormous support that had gathered on the National Mall. Inaccurate numbers involving crowd size were also tweeted. No one had numbers because the National Park Service, which controls the National Mall, does not put any out. This was the largest audience to ever witness an inauguration, period. Period? I think you mean double question marks. <laughs> and what's going on with that big jacket? Do you use the same tailor as Tom Brady? <laughs> now, of course, there are lots of ways to fact check Spicer's obvious lies. But you might have noticed that Spicer actually disproved his own lie in a matter of seconds. No one had numbers. This was the largest audience to ever witness an inauguration, period. There's no way of knowing how many people were there, but there were definitely more people there than ever before. <laughs> no, he's right. He's right that there are no hard numbers because the National Park Service does not release crowd estimates. But the Washington Area Transit Authority does release ridership numbers, and according to those numbers, Friday's Metro ridership was the lowest in at least two presidential inaugurations. And it was also lower than that of an average weekday. <laughs> so, Trump did worse than an average weekday. That means people called in sick to work to not go to the inauguration. <laughs> and yet, Trump continues to lie about provable and obvious facts. And now, White House officials are even coining new terms to defend their lies, as White House Counselor Kellyanne Conway did yesterday on Meet the Press. Why put him out there the, for the very first time in front of that podium to utter a provable falsehood? It undermines the credibility of the entire White House press office no, on day don't one. Be so, don't be so overly dramatic about it, Chuck. What it, it, you're saying it's a falsehood, and they're giving Sean Spicer, our press secretary, gave alternative facts to that. Kellyanne Conway is like someone trying to do the Jedi mind trick after only a week of Jedi training. <laughs> these are not the droids you're looking for. Yeah, they are. Those are my droids. No, these are alternative robots. <laughs> now, these may seem like small lies, but the small lies inoculate us against bigger lies. They make facts a matter of partisan debate rather than accepted, shared reality. It may be crowd sizes now, but soon, much bigger decisions will come when reality will matter. The only way to answer these lies for the next four years will be organized resistance, like the protests we saw this weekend. And if that doesn't work, there's always this. I got candy! Give me a closer look. Yesterday, with a bipartisan group of congressional leaders, President Trump repeated the false claim that he would have won the popular vote had it not been for three to five million people who voted illegally. 
Which brings us to a segment we call, Hey! Hey! Why do you keep lying about this? There is zero evidence for this claim. Also, why would you say three to five million people? We already know from the inauguration that you have no idea what a million people looks like. Just accept you're bad at guesstimating. How many kids do you have? Well, there's Ivanka and 20. But hey, you won the election. What are you complaining about? You're like a guy who wins the Super Bowl and spends the post-game interview complaining about a pass interference call in the first quarter. Winners don't complain about the final score. You know who does? Degenerate gamblers. But I guess if you knew anything about gamblers, your casinos would still be open. The election. The election is over, and you're the president. So let me just say what dozens of women have already said to you. Hey, let go of it. <laughs> this has been Hey. The Late Night Podcast is available every Wednesday and Friday on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you like what you hear, please take a moment to leave us a rating and review. Now, back to the show. Our next guest is a National Book Award recipient, best-selling author, and national correspondent for The Atlantic. He wrote the wonderful cover story in the current issue of The Atlantic entitled, My President Was Black. Please welcome back to the show, ta Coates, everybody. Thank you for coming back on the show. Thanks for having me back on the show. Now, uh, congratulations on this article. It's a fascinating read. You've, I mean, I've read so much about Obama over the years, and yet I found I was learning, uh, thinking about him in a different way after reading this article. But... One of the things that required you required was access, and you, you sat down with him multiple times. And yeah. is it hard to get someone like President Obama <laughs> to agree to spend that much time with a reporter? No, it's easy. <laughs> <laughs> you just call him up. Uh, nothing. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. I, actually, and, I, and it was hard for me specifically um, because I think we started trying to get this done in like 2014, 13, 14, somewhere around then. Um, well, because I had written things that were kind of critical. Sure. And I had been called into these off-the-record sessions where he was very plain about how he felt about those things that were critical. Uh-huh. Um, he was not pleased. Right. <laughs> so, I, I, you know, it wasn't clear to me that he was going to grant that sort of access. You know what I mean? But uh, he read uh, my, my previous book, Between the World, and he really liked it. Wrote me a note. We had lunch. And I asked if he would sit, you know, for uh, a series of interviews. And he agreed to do it. Uh, before we move on, because you spoke to him after the election, and I want to talk to you about that, but when, do you remember the first time you heard the name Barack Obama? Yeah, it was, um, <clears throat> it was when he was running for Senate. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, it's hard to, for people to, to, to remember this, but um, before uh, uh, Barack Obama won in 2004, there had been only two black people post-Reconstruction who had been in the Senate, Edmund Brooke and Carol Mosley Braun, also from Illinois. So the idea that a black guy was running for Senate and might actually win. Name Barack Obama. People overlook that all the time. Yeah. Name Barack Hussein Obama in 2004, you know, three years after 9-11, was stunning. Yeah. I mean, it was absolutely... I mean, now that he's president, it's like, whatever, Senate, that was nothing. <laughs> but it was stunning. So I was shocked. I was like, who is this dude, you know? And one of the things you talk about uh, over the course of this article, and then even when you spoke to him afterwards, that... He has an enduring optimism about this country and about the people in this country. Certainly, I think it's safe to say, less optimism than you have. Probably. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, What... Where do you think 
that optimism, and, and more than just that optimism, but the fact that that optimism seems unflagging right. up to this point, up right. to after this election? Well, I think all presidents, are you going to, well, I mean, Jesus, I guess that's not true. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I guess all presidents have to be optimistic. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not. Almost all. Yeah, almost yeah. all. Up until now. I mean, it was, and this was the thing he said, you know, it, you know that, that, you know, all presidents had, but he had to be optimistic. Let's be very specific. I yeah. think he had to be in order for him to be, you know, first African-American president. I, I think it comes out of a couple things. I think not only is the president biracial, but he's actually raised by his white family in a loving home, uh, far from the fulcrum of Jim Crow and segregation in Hawaii, not in Chicago, not in New York, Baltimore, Cleveland, no, nowhere like that, like in Hawaii, uh, and remarkably by a family that did not feel this urge to make him choose, told him he was black, said that was a pretty cool thing, as he said, you know, interviewing, he felt his mom thought black people were cool. So he didn't grow up with the kind of um, self-doubt and self-questioning, not only about, you know, himself. But, but the sort of questioning that I think a lot of us do about white people and their intentions, that, that was not, that was always abstract to him. You know, he understood racism, but as it being a personal thing, it, it wasn't the same. And you talked to him afterwards, and do you think, you know, because he still has this trust, and he also had this doubt that this country could elect somebody like Donald Trump. Is that the same core that you're talking about, that his upbringing did not allow him to think that a person like this could, could end up being elected president? I mean, I don't think it accords with his basic theory. I mean, and it's just me speaking, right? I mean, obviously, if he were here, he would say something different. But I know that when I talked to him before, he did not think Trump could be elected. And part of why he didn't think he, he could be elected was... Uh, his, you know, beliefs about the American people. You know, he just thought that, you know, it really, really wasn't possible for folks to go. You know, and this circles back to what we were talking about, that you had to be optimistic. You couldn't appeal to some sort of dark, you know, sense. That proved to not be true. Uh, you, uh, I, I want to ask about this because I, uh, you talk about this idea, and I said it even on the show, you know, in the early days after the election, trying to boil it down, that people who voted for him and then voted for Trump, right. uh, they could not be racist. Right. And that was an idea that, that I shared, and I realize now, uh, after reading your article, there was something reductive about that. Right. I, may, I was simplifying it. Right. Um, talk a little bit, because you make this point that, that in order for a black president, and you speak about the optimism, like he kind of had to be the perfect candidate, yeah. whereas <laughs> white candidates in this country don't have to be. I mean, every day, every day something happens. Like, I just can't imagine, like... You know, a black dude as president standing in front of a memorial for you know all the CIA agents who died, talking about how smart he was. Yeah, and it just it just doesn't like that guy couldn't be governor. You know what I mean? Right. Much less you know. I mean, every day Trump does. You know, I, I can't imagine a black man running for let's just say senator. You know, with the tape coming out about him bragging about having sexually harassed. You know, someone. It's just not possible to imagine a black Donald Trump. That that really is the the difference. It's the bar. The bar is significantly higher. And just really quickly, um, I think it doesn't say necessarily like that if you voted for Trump that, that you were racist. That doesn't necessarily have to be of true. Of course not. But what is probably true is that Trump's uh, appeals to bigotry are not disqualifying. Right. And if you're targeted at bigotry, that would make you feel some sort of way about the fact that it's not disqualifying. Yeah, of course. And I think it's fair for people... Uh, to feel that about people who voted for Trump, right. that you can say, well, that racism is, is not disqualifying, right. and that is not insignificant. Right. Um, you wrote that you were shocked that you were shocked <laughs> yeah. about the outcome of this election. Right. Explain exactly what you meant by that. I mean, there's a part of me, you know, that, that I really wanted and want still, you know, I mean, 
listen, I didn't think Barack Obama could win. Like, I didn't think there could be a black president. I was wrong. I was very happy to be wrong. Like, it was like, you know, this beautiful moment. You know what I mean? It's like, you know, people who think, say, uh, you know, who, you know, believe in global warming, if they're wrong, I'm sure they'd be very happy to be wrong. It'd right. be a great world to, 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 to be wrong or something like that. Um, this, in a very, very uncomfortable way, I feel like accorded with a lot of what I had been writing. And maybe I, there's an intellectual part of me that wanted to believe it, but in my, that believed it, but in my heart, I don't want, I would much rather his view of the world be correct. Mm-hmm. You know, and you interview somebody for four and a half, you know, hours, you know, over several sessions, you think, huh, maybe they, maybe they are right. Yeah. Maybe I'm wrong. You know, and then, well, what happened, happened. Yeah, and it's not a, it was not a, a great night to be uh, right. No, no, yeah. no, no, no. I was not going around crowing. You yeah. Know I mean? Thank, you know what I mean? Um, one of the things uh, that I am a big fan of is uh, the different things you do with your career. You write a piece like this. Uh, we talked about this last time. You were about to embark on writing yeah. Black Panther for Marvel Comics. Uh, yeah. You've had an incredible run. Uh, right. I'm so glad you do it. And you've got a new one coming out, Black Panther and Crew. Right. Um, and this one takes place in Harlem. It does. That's yeah. fantastic. Yes. Yeah, and awesome. are you, uh, how has the, because you were just about to start when the last time we were here. Right. How is it balancing sort of the very heavy stuff you work on and then also spending time, although it should be noted, you have some heavy themes in your, right, this right, is right, not right, the, right, the, right, the, the lightest comic book yeah. either, but um, at least the nice thing is you send it off and someone draws pictures. That right, I know. Right. Yeah, yeah, it's fun. It's exciting. <laughs> Um, you know, it's interesting. Um, so I've, you know, for most, much of my career, you know, written about, you know, force of racism, these very sort of heavy divisive issues, it is nothing compared to the response you get when you write comic books. <laughs> the intensity of people who care about, I mean, I, I've never seen anything like it. Is, I mean... Is it a nice intensity? You've enjoyed it so far? Sometimes it's nice. Yeah. Sometimes it's really nice. I mean, because if they love you, they really, really love you. Right. But if they don't, you are the worst <laughs> thing that ever happened. <laughs> Period. Well, let's like, just hope not. in our political culture, we never quite get so ramped up that we're into comic book world. <laughs> right, right, right. right. Uh, thank you so much for being back on the show. Thanks such a pleasure yeah. talking to you. Tanahashi Kota, everybody. You can read his cover story in the current issue of the Atlantic Magazine and on theatlantic.com. We'll be right back. Hey, everyone. My name is Henry. I am a segment producer here at Late Night. I'm backstage with Tanahasi Coates, who just finished his interview with Seth. I'm going to ask him a couple more questions. Uh, Tanahasi, you were just talking with Seth about your fantastic piece in the Atlantic. I wanted to ask, do you enjoy talking about your writing? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I enjoy talking about the process. Mm-hmm. I, I'm, I, I love like the process, and I love like thinking and talking about how you know people actually put together pieces like that. So yeah, I do. The politics less so, oddly enough. Even though, you know, all the stuff I write is pretty political. Actually, the politics is kind of... Usually, by the time I'm done with the piece, the politics is, like, really boring to me. Although, obviously, I talk about it. You'd rather talk about, like, Black Panther and Marvel, that kind of thing? Would I rather talk about Black Panther and Marvel? Sometimes. Sometimes. But even then, it's the process. Like, it's this way that, like... So, after you've actually done the thing to make this make sense, after you've done the thing, I don't want to say it's dead for you, but your mind is on to the next thing. Right. The only thing that's still in common is the process. Right, right. Do you understand? Like, that's always with you. Like, that. how how do I pull this together? How do I do this? For instance, when, you know, when we were out there talking about, like, the interviews. And I mean, that, that's an eternal question of how you deal with, you know, powerful people. That will always be a question in my life in a way that the particular politics of the piece, or even if I'm writing a comic book, the actual, you know, plot of the comic book is not. Right. Do you read your work after you publish it? Do you go back and read your books, your magazine articles? I do, but then at a certain point, I usually stop. It's funny because I got a book that's a compilation that's coming out and, and some new stuff, but it's coming out uh, this fall. 
I have to go back and read everything, and I'm kind of dreading it. <laughs> Even my blog stuff. Uh, well, awesome. Thank you so much for being here. It's such Thanks a pleasure seeing you. It's Come a back pleasure. soon. Anytime. Thanks. Want more Late Night with Seth Myers? Be sure to follow the handle at Late Night Seth on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, and Snapchat. You can also watch full episodes of Late Night at LateNightSeth.com or on the NBC app. Thanks for listening. Hey, you. It's Jason Bateman. Have you listened to Smartless? Smartless is the podcast that I host with my friends who are more like brothers. The super talented and funny Will Arnett and Sean Hayes is... JJ, well, JJ, JJ, why are, yeah. you, why are you whispering? Well, it, there's there's a psst in the, in, the, in the copy. But people are listening, so it's like... They are listening. Like, okay. Yeah. Yeah. In each episode of Smartless, one of us reveals our mystery guest to the other two. What ensues is a genuinely improvised and authentic conversation. Our mystery guests span. Our mystery... We'll cut this out. Our mystery guests. All right, here we, we go. We got a lot of big famous people from different walks of life. And if you're yeah, a Matthew Wondery fan, then you're going to... Stone, yeah. Just you come and listen Tyson. to it. Yeah. We're on Wondery right now and you can listen uh, to us. And no matter what you're doing, you're at the gym or you're in the car, just listen yeah. to the podcast. Sean, tell them where they can find it. Follow Smartless on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Smartless ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Bye. Bye. Bye.